Hello, and welcome to the ADHD 365 podcast. I'm your host, Susan Booning. This episode is brought to you by the International ADHD Coach Training Center. The International ADHD Coach Training Center is setting a new standard by preparing their graduates to become world-class, confident, certified ADHD life coaches so they can make a living while making a difference. To find out if you have what it takes to become an ADHD life coach in one year, go to www.iactcenter.com. The decision to medicate a child with ADHD is a difficult choice for many parents. What are the benefits and risks of taking ADHD medication? How do you know what's right for your child? We will hear from Dr. Max Wisnitzer, an associate professor of pediatrics, neurology, and international health at Case Western Reserve University. He serves on Chad's board of directors and the editorial boards for Attention Magazine, Lancet Neurology, and the Journal of Child Neurology. He lectures around the world about various neurodevelopmental disabilities. Welcome, Max, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Max, tell us how you got involved in working with ADHD. I've always been interested in language and learning. And after I delved into it more deeply, it turned out that children with language and learning problems frequently had ADHD as a behavioral and a learning impact accompaniment. And because I was taking care of kids with language and learning problems, I had to learn on how to manage their ADHD also. How do medications work to improve the core symptoms of ADHD? Well, the core symptoms of ADHD are basically three. There's problems with attention span, there are problems with impulse control, and there's problems with motor control, which basically means holding still for things that you have to do. People sometimes believe that it's hyperactivity means you're bouncing off the walls. But in an older individual, it could be something as simple as being fidgety, internal restlessness, just not feeling quite right. And you can also be verbally, you can hyperactive, which means you talk a lot more than than kids normally would do. So you've got those three core features. And what the medications do is they lessen the severity of those three core features. They improve attention span, they reduce impulse control, and because you're paying attention and you're less impulsive, you basically sit more quietly, sit longer for periods of time, and get less distractible. There's different mechanisms by which medicines work, but at the bottom line, what they do is they affect brain chemistry, and in the simplest way of thinking of it is they bring things back into better balance in terms of the brain chemistry in comparison to how it used to be, where you might have too little impact of one chemical such as dopamine, which is needed for appropriate attention span, and too much of others, and it just brings the ratios back to where they should be. What medications do we have currently for ADHD, and what are some of the new medications for ADHD? The medications we have for ADHD basically fall into three categories, at least in my mind. One is the stimulant medications, methylphenidate, Ritalin, uh, amphetamine, Adderall, and their derivatives. These are medications that have been around for decades, probably have been around longer than than your average listener has been alive uh, in that regard. The second category, we'll, we'll say, is the antidepressants. 
but they're not being used to treat depression because after all, they affect brain chemistry. These are drugs, the old ones would be like the tricyclic antidepressants. Uh, other names that people may recognize would be uh, atomoxetine or stratera, the newer one. And, uh, and their mechanism of action is working on what's called the nor noradrenergic system. While the stimulant medications work on dopamine, which is uh, one of the brain chemicals. This one works on the noradrenergic system, uh, uh, which, uh, which is a, we'll say, a sister chemical pathway that's there. Then there's the third category of medications, which are the alpha adrenergic drugs, clonidine and guanfacine, and the variations that are made on those. People may know their names as catapress and um, 10X as the short-acting and uh, Intunov and Capve as the long-acting formulations of these medications. And they have other medicines working on somewhat different uh, chemical systems in the brain. But all of them do the same thing. All, they're all intended to reduce impulsivity, improve attention span, and reduce the overactivity that tends to occur with ADHD. Traditionally, with these medicines, the short-acting ones uh, of the stimulant class, for instance, they would last about four hours. For years, we've had longer-acting, uh, lasting agents, lasting between 8 and 12 hours, depending on the formulation you have. And they've come in a variety in the, in the traditional way, either a pill you can swallow, a time release you can follow, swallow, or sprinkle formulations. But despite that, there are still individuals who cannot swallow pills, don't like the taste of the tablets, but if you have to chew them up, and do not, and are bothered by the texture of the sprinkles. But there are newer options that we have for these that range from pills that dissolve in your mouth, from liquid formulations that contain extended release product in them, to patch that basically, instead of swallowing it, gets absorbed through the skin and slowly increases the blood level of the medication in your in your body. How do the newer medications work differently and what areas do they target? They, they don't work differently. The ones that I just mentioned don't work differently. They're still stimulant medicines. Mm -hmm. So they're still taking either methylphenidate or Ritalin or amphetamine or Adderall, but delivering it in a different way that may be more easy for the child and or adult to take in in comparison to the older, we'll say traditional mm -hmm. uh, uh, formulations or, or, or preparations of these medications. At what age should parents start working with children to take their medication independently? And can you give us a few tips about that process? Uh, the children, can, believe it or not, children as young as two years old can be taught to swallow pills. On average, children learn to swallow pills between about age 6 and 11 years. But if there's a pill that they have to swallow and the children are capable, they can learn easily in the preschool years by 4 or 5 years of age. I have patients of mine between 4 and 6 years of age who swallow like champs. Uh, and, there are, and all you have to then do is basically ask. Uh, for some tips and techniques, you tend to start practice. You don't obviously you don't practice with the medicines that you're taking, but you can practice on small things like tic tacs. I always tell folks you can also use uh, uh, things such as Good and Plenty if you're looking for more of a uh, of, of that shape of a pill or something similar to that. Uh, 
uh, like Mike's and Ike's, uh, unless you want to just chew them up and swallow them. Um, uh, and there are methods that can be taught you. There's methods using straws and putting the pills in the back of your throat and then swallowing the water. There's lots of different ways that people can find uh, and can get advice for how to do it. There are some children that will have challenges for swallowing. And these children may fall into about three camps. These are children who have problems with oral motor function, which means they can't coordinate the swallow mechanism well. They usually have other motor problems that, pre that interfere with their daily functioning. There's, there's a group of children who intellectually are just basically delayed enough. They don't understand what you want them to do. And then there's a group of children who are basically too stressed uh, about swallowing things. They're very selective. Whether you want to say they have sensory issues or whether they have anxiety, the wording is immaterial, but it just bothers them. And for those children, some of these newer formulations of the medications might, might be much more easy to use uh, than trying to get them to actually learn how to swallow. That's why we have these options. The only difficulties, because people are going to ask, the only difficulties is the newer preparations tend to be brand name products. And we know that insurance companies prefer that they try generics. But in some cases, the generic just won't work. And while working with the physician, you can get around the insurance company block on that and be able to make sure that the child gets what he or she is supposed to be getting, whether it's the liquid or the melt tab or the patch. Or even now, since you asked about some of the newer formulations, there is even a medicine that soon come out on the market that you take it at night at bedtime and it kicks in first thing in the morning. So it takes about 12 hours or so for it before the medicine actually releases. And that might be, for instance, that might be helpful for the child who uh, is a bear when first waking up and very defiant and very difficult to work with and causes a lot of stress in the house for the parents and siblings. If the medicine kicks in by the, when they're waking up, it makes it easier to transition out of bed to the breakfast table and then to school. Uh, now, how about genetic testing? Is that helpful, genetic testing, to figure out the right medications? And should patients be encouraged to undergo it? You have to ask the question, what does the genetic testing do? And it's actually the technical term for people who want to know the technical mm -hmm. term is pharmacogenomic mm -hmm. testing, which really means we're testing how the body breaks down these various medications. And it's been shown in research studies that there are certain variations in the genes that make enzymes, which are the little factories in the body, that help break down medications. And some of these genes have little alterations in them that make the factory either more efficient or less efficient in the breakdown. Obviously, if you're more efficient, you need more of the medication in order to maintain the same blood level. If you're less efficient, if I, 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 you basically can get toxic. You can get side effects from taking the regular dose of the medicine. So pharmacogenomic testing can be helpful when there's a question of how the child is metabolizing it. So for instance, I give a child some medication and it doesn't seem to be working at the dose I'm using. Is it because the, the child is breaking it down too quickly? I give the child some medication. The child seems to have side effects no matter how low the dose is. Is that because the child breaks it down too slowly? But for the regular child who's first starting on medication, it really does not guide the choice of the medicine in the way that people may believe it does because 
while you're testing for one factory, but there may be multiple factories that are involved in the process of breaking it down, but you're only testing for one of them. I have patients of mine that according to their blood tests should not even be able to respond to a medicine and yet they're doing great on the medicine that the, that the blood test says shouldn't work for them. So you need to basically decide and ask the question, why am I doing the testing? Which usually is, I've tried several medications they don't seem to fit right. They don't seem to be working the way I expect. They're having side effects that I don't expect. Is it because of how the body is handling those meds? Then, when you're asking the right question, that test can give you the good, uh, the correct answer. Uh, but, but just because it should every child have that test done? In my opinion, the answer is no. Uh, I think that it should be reserved for those children uh, who basically. Uh, are having difficulties with management. And the management is not because the diagnosis is incorrect. Mm -hmm. The management is not because the medicine choices are incorrect, but because there may be fast metabolizers or slow metabolizers or have certain problems with how the medicine binds to, 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 to their locations where they're supposed to be working. What are the long-term effects of using medication? The, po the, the long-term effects of using medication are mainly positive. And people don't always think about that. They always worry about side effects. Mm -hmm. But think about the positive. We know from research studies that individuals who are on medication long-term tend to have better outcomes. They are able to focus on what they're supposed to do. And if we remember, what is the medicine meant to do? The medicine is meant to teach you good habits. So you can learn, you pay attention, stay focused, and you develop good habits and avoid developing bad habits. We know that being on the medication uh, can help you learn appropriately, pay attention, pay attention and learn how to pay attention appropriately, develop better social relationships, and avoid bad habits such as drug abuse, substance abuse, basically that would be uh, uh, alcohol, cigarette smoking and stuff and things of that nature, as well as, we'll just say, going down the wrong path uh, and uh, and getting into trouble with authorities. Uh, uh, so that those are the positive effects. Are there possible long-term side effects? No, not really, as long as you monitor correctly. The medications in a small number can affect appetite, which needs to be monitored, because if it does affect appetite and you're not gaining weight the way you're supposed to, uh, then you can clearly have problems later on because you may not grow the way you are. However, many people complain, Johnny's not eating as well as he's, as, as he's supposed to be. And it turns out Johnny was a bit of an overeater before. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the growth curves, which could we plot these numbers out, and we have normal values for each age of where they're supposed to be at, it turns out that in the majority of the children, the growth curves stay nice and stable. And the weights, are, if they're measured appropriately, basically stay in the range they're supposed to be, and uh, and the children do gain weight. Remember, in, right. in the years between eight and, let's say, 10 years of age, just to use one range, children only gain a few pounds a year. Mm -hmm. Puberty time, they start gaining more. Mm -hmm. When they're very little, they gain more. Uh, but in between, it's not like they're going to put on 10 pounds every year. That is not what happens uh, in that regard. Other long-term complications that we do need to monitor, there's a small number of people that can it can cause blood pressure to go up a bit. Blood pressure needs to be monitored, especially if you have a tendency towards hypertension, which means high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, things like this should be monitored. It can cause some other problems, not long-term, but short-term, fast heart rate that people can feel. Uh, as far as we know, that in and of itself doesn't cause any problems. 
again, for short term, we have to make sure the medicine does not aggravate underlying anxiety, mm-hmm. make the children too irritable, uh, and uh, cause them to be too impulsive because if it aggravates anxiety uh, and to make poor decisions. And that's where when people read about it, they read about the suicidal ideation that can occur with some of these drugs is because they're impulsive and it causes irritation uh, or aggravation of an underlying condition such as bipolar disorder or anxiety. But for the most part, uh, once you've gotten past the initiation phase and if you're doing well, uh, it's basically predominantly be- benefits and very rarely it is it bad things? But monitoring is very important. It's always important to monitor. That is why even if you're doing well, mm-hmm. you go in for checks as recommended by the doctor. So you can monitor the blood pressure. You can monitor the heart rate. You can monitor growth, mm-hmm. weight gain, and height gain. Uh, those are the things that, that, that need to be kept an eye on. Because remember, there's other problems that these children can have besides those. So those can pick up. I have had patients of mine whose blood pressures have been high, not because of my medicine, but because I monitor the blood pressure all the time, I was able to make the referral mm-hmm. uh, to get the, their hypertension managed uh, appropriately. So it, there's a lot of benefits for the children. Is there anything else, any final words you'd like to add? Yes, um, there's, there's a lot of concerns by people. Uh, about the use of these medications. Mm -hmm. They basically read things on the internet. And one of the things we have to tell people is make sure the sources that you're using are reputable and accurate sources. The National Resource Center on ADHD clearly has a lot of useful evidence-based information so that what you you read you can depend on versus because my next-door neighbor told me. Uh, I would never do medical management on that basis, although sometimes the ideas are good. Mm -hmm. But I always check, double check and make sure that what I'm being told is accurate. So one thing is that. Number two, people have concerns about treating young, especially young children, Mm -hmm. preschool children Mm -hmm. with ADHD. And the official recommendations for this are, number one, identify if ADHD is truly present or if there's other reasons for the behavior. Number two, don't be shy about intervening. And the intervention initially should be using appropriate behavioral strategies, appropriate educational strategies, just like we would for any ADHD children. Because while the medicine improves attention span, reduces impulsivity, none of these medicines that we prescribe teach you how to behave or teach you how to learn, teach you how to manage your finances, teach you how to get a job or hold a job. They don't do that. You've got to take advantage of the medication to help you with that. Some preschoolers, are so symptomatic with their ADHD that it puts them at risk, not only for learning problems and social problems, but actually for physical injury. Mm-hmm. Running into the street without looking for cars, falling off uh, out of windows, all of which have happened with, with children that I know. And in those cases, parents should not hesitate about a trial of medication, recognizing that in the preschool years, medications can be helpful, although they may not have as big a kick and you have to monitor for side effects closely, but it can make the biggest difference in the world for those children, whether they're going to be successful in the home and school setting uh, compared to not being on medication. Oh, thank you, Max, very much. That's very helpful. I'm sure parents will appreciate all of this guidance from you on medications. It's my pleasure because we have to remember it. It's basically for the children and the adults mm-hmm. with ADHD. We, always, we want to make sure that they're in control of the disorder and the disorder does not control them. This episode is brought to you by the International ADHD Coach Training Center. 
The International ADHD Coach Training Center is setting a new standard by preparing their graduates to become world-class, confident, certified ADHD life coaches so they can make a living while making a difference. To find out if you have what it takes to become an ADHD life coach in one year, go to www.iactcenter.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of ADHD 365. Be sure to check out Chad's other podcasts, All Things ADHD, and Ask the Expert. Stay up to date on the latest ADHD information by connecting to Chad's social media page at chad.org social that will link you to all of our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube.